I hope this isn't surprising anybody, but Valentine's Day was yesterday, so you maybe missed it. That's, you know, that's not on me, but uh, it is a good time to talk about love since Valentine's is uh, a time as a culture when we talk about love. And so we're going to talk about love today and actually every Sunday from here until Easter, but not romantic love, not Valentine's Day type love. We're talking about love for everybody. As it says in our mission statement and you might have noticed on our bulletins, love God, love people, multiply disciples. And one of the most important things that we can do is love people, having love for others. It's so important that I want to spend the next, uh, however long it takes us until Easter to, to figure out more how can we love people? What does it really look like for us to love people? We're doing this because we're studying the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles, please open to Matthew chapter 5. You can grab one of the pew Bibles in front of you, if you don't have that. Matthew 5. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about life in God's kingdom. Jesus is giving this sermon. He's explaining what does it look like to be a member of God's family, to live in his kingdom. And what we've seen is it boils down to love. There's two great errors that can knock us off, either one way or the other. Last week, I introduced you to the idea of the drunk man on the horse. Martin Luther said humanity is like a drunk man on a horse. He, he falls off one direction, gets back up, and tries so hard not to fall off that way, he falls off the other direction. So there's these two great ways that we can fall off the horse in the Christian life. We can either fall off into legalism, that is thinking that God accepts us, and, and, and it, when we do enough, when we earn enough, when we obey his rules enough, then we have earned acceptance by God. That's legalism. That's wrong. The other way to fall off the horse is lawlessness, to think, uh, well, since I'm saved by free grace, then it doesn't matter what I do, and so I'll just sin and do whatever I want. That's wrong. That's lawlessness. And the middle way between the two of those is love, the law of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's simple on the surface, but we really do need help fleshing that out. And so in Matthew 5, Starting in verse 21, Jesus gives six examples of what it really looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. These aren't exhaustive. This is not the complete picture, but it's enough to get us going. And he starts with anger. So we're going to start with anger today. And we're going to ask the question, if, if we're really going to love other people, what does that mean for our anger? So look at Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. Matthew 5, 21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be put into prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is Jesus teaching on anger, and, and we have to remember, as we get into it this morning, his whole point is to teach what love really is. 
He's trying to teach us what love really looks like. To do that, he first has to deconstruct the Pharisees' false teaching. He's got to take, tear down their legalistic understanding of the law and then show us how deep the law of love really goes. To do that, he begins on really solid ground by teaching that murder is not love. Now, this is where we start. Murder is not love. Verse 21, he says, You've heard it said that it was, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. This is one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. And Jesus is not disputing it. He is affirming it. Remember, he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So Jesus doesn't say, you have heard that it was said, do not murder, but I say to you, murder. He doesn't say that. That would be crazy. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, love is deeper than not murdering. Not murdering is essential to loving. You you can't murder someone and love them at the same time. Murder is not love, and therefore murder is wrong. And, And I don't think any of us have any argument there. Even the Pharisees didn't have any argument, but the problem was they stopped there. As if not murdering was the gold standard of life. That's the whole moral duty of man, just don't murder. We still talk like this today. I've, I've encountered a number of people. Had a conversation, uh, you know, asking, do you think you're a good person? All the time they say, I think I'm a pretty good person. It's not like I've murdered anybody. That's kind of where we go. It's, ah, I'm a pretty good person. Not like I murdered anybody. As if murdering is the whole of the law. When folks say that to me, I, I, first I want to affirm that, like, good, good, continue not murdering. Okay, that's, that's good. I want to affirm that. But, but there's more. There's more to the law of love than that. And that's where Jesus goes next. And he says that in addition to murder not being love, anger is not love. So, See this contrast, verse 21 and 22. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. This immediately hits us more deeply. Nobody says, yeah, I think I'm a pretty good person. I mean, it's not like I get angry with anybody. Nobody says that because no one can say that. We all get angry with other people. There's plenty of us who have never murdered, but all of us have gotten angry. And so Jesus comes and he says, the Pharisees have told you not to murder, and they were right. Murder is unloving, but so is anger. And therefore, anger is wrong too. If you question this, it's really easy. Just do the golden rule test. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Do you like it? when other people are angry with you. I don't. I really hate it. I don't, I don't like it when people are angry with me. I think it's like the worst thing ever. So, I mean, you could, if you blow up at me and yell at me, I don't like that. Or if you're, just, uh, if you're just silent treatment or even that little disapproving look, uh, I, I don't like that. That can make me wither up inside. And so I think, well, that's, that's not loving. I don't, I don't like it when other people are angry with me. So applying the golden rule, I should do unto others as they have them do unto me. So I shouldn't be angry with them. I don't think I'm alone in this. I don't like it when you're angry with me. Now, if that's true, then it's pretty obvious that anger is unloving. It's a violation of the law of love, and so Jesus says it's wrong. But how wrong? How wrong? I still think you're all tracking with me so far. Yeah, murder is wrong, anger is wrong, but how wrong? That's a big question. 
We like to put anger somewhere on the sliding scale of, uh, of evil deeds. We'll say murder, of course, way over here, super bad thing. Anger, yes, it's wrong, technically. We all do it, though. It's kind of a part of life, and so it's maybe over here. Not that big of a deal. But when you look at how Jesus describes it, he presents anger and murder as moral equivalents. He says, ultimately, they are both equally bad. You see this in the way verses 21 and 22 parallel each other. He says, you've heard it said uh, to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say, and listen how close this is. He says, to everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You see the parallel there? He said, in one case, you said murder is liable to judgment. I say anger is liable to judgment. See, there's the exact same punishment here. He doesn't contradict what they said about murder, but he says not only that, but anger has the same issue, the same punishment. You keep on reading in these verses, and you see, too, that anger, as it gives birth to contempt, is, is also itself enough to deserve hell. He doesn't say those who murder are in danger of the hell of fire. He says those who are angry, who say, you fool. So anger is not a trifling sin. It's not a lesser sin. It's as bad as murder. Now, you you could go off wrong with this, right? And you say, well, if anger and murder are the same thing, if I'm angry with somebody, I might as well murder them. That'd be wrong. Be wrong. The point is, anger is as bad as murder. So as hard as you work not to murder people, as seriously as you take it not to murder people, take it that seriously, work that hard to not be angry with them. Because anger and murder are morally equivalent. Murder is not love. Anger is not love. So we need to turn from those. But if you keep on reading, you see he goes deeper still. And this word isn't there, but I think it captures what he's talking about. Contempt is not love. So murder is not love, anger is not love, and contempt is not love. We see this in verse 22 as he builds this progression. I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. There's a progression. It starts with anger. And, and that anger you know, that probably begins with some sort of emotional response, a flash of anger, either to a minor annoyance or a, or a big wrong but there's an emotional response. And I want to be clear, I, I don't think that that emotional response, that initial reaction to something, is the anger he's talking about here. You know, to, to a certain extent, we can't control that anger. Something happens, we experience that emotion. But right after that split-second emotional reaction, we have control. We can choose what to do with it. I heard an illustration from a pastor that was really helpful. He described this like a train coming into a station. So we have these thoughts, these reactions, responses that happen in our lives, and it's like a train coming into a station. You cannot control that train coming in. It's going to come in, but you have a choice. You can choose to let that train come in and just keep on going, right on out the other side of the station, or you can stop the train. You let the people get out, buy a newspaper, have some coffee, talk to one another, hang around, 
talk on their phones, check their Facebook. You know, just let, let them hang out there. And the longer that the people hang out in the station, the harder it is to herd them back on the train and get the train out of the, out of the station. Okay, he's saying that we, there's two different ways that we can respond to these thoughts that enter our minds. As the emotional response comes, someone annoys you, someone cuts you off in traffic, you get this surge of frustration. You might call it righteous anger, I don't know. But you've got this, this surge of emotion, and, and you, what, what are you going to do? You can let that emotion just go right on by. Okay? Just let it go. It comes in, it goes out, it's gone. Or you can camp out. You can invite that emotion to stay, to unload the passengers, to hang out, and just kind of make a camp right there in your mind. The anger, I think, that Jesus is talking about here is that, that anger, that, that decision to let the train unload, to let it stop, to begin to think about your hurt and cherish it, to start to wish for bad things to happen to the person who's made you angry. And the longer you let those thoughts simmer, the longer you let the people off the train, the harder it is to get them back on and moving out. So the progression, then, is that this anger comes in, we, we hold on to it, we let it simmer, we let it boil, and eventually it gives birth to contempt. We see that here in the, the language that's used, the words that we say, the way we talk. There's two insults in verse 22 that Jesus mentions. Uh, the first one in the ESV, the translation I'm using, it just says, whoever insults his brother, you get a little footnote there, it tells you the actual word. It says, whoever says raka to his brother which is a word that meant empty-headed. So it's, it's like calling somebody an idiot right? or a moron. The second word, it says whoever says you fool, is much stronger than, uh, than just us saying you fool. That's really not that big of an insult today. Now, the first one, raka, would be like calling someone an idiot. The second one, you fool, would be more like calling them something that would be bleeped out on network television. A little, a little stronger, a little more contemptuous. And, and our language is a dead giveaway that we're in the realm of contempt. When you start insulting someone, calling them idiots, thinking of them as bleeping fools, then you're in the realm of contempt. So there's a progression. You, you don't start off despising them. First you get angry, then you cherish it, then you talk badly about them, then you hate them, and sometimes that hate fully formed ends up with you killing them. But murder doesn't come out of nowhere. It begins in the heart. There's a horrible story in the news this week that is a tremendous illustration of this. You've probably heard about it. There's this guy in, in uh, North Carolina that killed three 20-something Muslims. He shot them. And uh, th- certainly there seems to be some racial stuff, some religious stuff, which also goes down into anger in the heart. But it was really interesting to hear the explanation so far as to why this man shot these three people. Uh, the police say it was a parking dispute. That is, this the street in which they lived. They were neighbors, and there was limited parking on the street. Everybody got about like one spot or something. And, and this guy was angry about parking and angry that they were parking the wrong spots or no, you know, people were parking in his place, and he was frustrated. Now, it's not unusual to be frustrated about parking. But how do you go from frustrated about parking to killing three people? The article that I read in USA Today had these quotes. Just listen to the progression. Uh, His wife explained it and said, it was related to a long-standing parking dispute that my husband had with the neighbors. 
His lawyer said, it's an issue of this man being frustrated day in and day out. One neighbor said, any time that I saw him or saw interaction with him or friends or anyone in the parking lots or myself, he was angry, she said. He was very angry any time I saw him. And then one day that anger blew up into murder. Of course, we still scratch our heads and say, how? How could it blow up into murder? How could you cross that line? And yet Jesus, I don't think, is surprised. Because he says the natural outcome of anger and contempt is murder. You let it boil long enough, you get the right opportunity, anything can happen. My question for us, though, is just to think through, when did this man go wrong? When did he go wrong? When did he cross the line into being wrong? Was it when he finally pulled the trigger and killed these three people? The Pharisees would say, yes, that is when he went wrong, because the law says do not murder. Up until that point, he didn't murder, so he didn't do anything wrong. But once he crossed that line, well, then now he's subject to judgment. That's not what Jesus would say. Jesus would say, this guy went wrong the moment he let that frustration, let that train unpack its people and began to think about it and dwell on it and hold on to that grudge and cherish it and give birth to contempt and hatred. See, it doesn't become wrong when you finally lash out and hurt someone. It's wrong all the way through. course, using an illustration like that's dangerous because we can say, whoa, that horrible person. Um, and we'd miss the point of our passage completely if we patted our backs as we left here and saying, thank God I am not like that guy. Because Jesus's whole emphasis in this passage is we are like that guy. And because of this, I have been tremendously convicted and I don't want to be alone. So let me help you. Um, are you angry? Are you angry? Are you angry with our president? Do you find yourself calling him names? Do you enjoy it when other people call him names? Do you want him to fail? Are you angry with Congress and other elected officials? Do you think they are idiots? Do you say that they are idiots? Are you angry and contemptuous of people who drive slowly? Or of that boy or that girl who insulted you in class, maybe 50 years ago? Are you still angry with that teacher who treated you unfairly? Or the business partner who ruined your company? Or your ex-boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse who betrayed you? Or your parents? Or your child? Or your neighbor? Or maybe you have a simmering anger against the system that discriminates against you because you're not the right gender or race or age or social class or you don't know the right people. Can we just admit that we're all angry? When we look at God's law of love, when we really look at God's law of love, we are sinners. We have been angry. We are angry. We may not have murdered someone. You may have. But even if you haven't, we constantly fail to love our neighbors as ourselves. And therefore, we're guilty. And Jesus says, therefore, we are liable to the hell of fire. 
What are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with that when we really face the law of God and we, we look at it in its entirety, not just do not murder, oh, I'm good. No, don't be angry. We say, what can I do? I, I, I have been angry. I am angry. I am liable to the hell of fire. This takes us right back to the beginning of the sermon. Not, not my sermon, but Jesus' sermon. The Sermon on the Mount begins in Matthew 5, 3. Remember how it starts? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what it means to be poor in spirit, to look at God's law in its entirety and say, I cannot do that. I am not doing that. I fail all the time to, to live up to God's standards. Because of that, I have no hope on my own. Okay, that's being poor in spirit. And you know what God says? He says, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm looking for. People who have empty hands. People say, I cannot do it on my own. Please save me. He says, welcome. Welcome to my kingdom. He loves to forgive people, even people who are angry, even people who are contemptuous, even people who are murderers. So if you're facing the law of God today and you're feeling guilty about your anger, don't waste your guilt. Let your guilt drive you to the cross to ask Jesus to forgive you and change you and cleanse you from your sin. But at the same time, don't stop there. Don't stop there. Because the point of this teaching is not simply to make us feel hopeless. Oh, I can never do this. Jesus, forgive me. Now I'm just going to go out and be angry because I can't stop it. Okay, that's lawlessness. As the law drives you to the cross, you receive grace and mercy from Jesus. Then Jesus points you back to the law and says, now this is how to live. And so we look to the law and say, Lord, help me to live this way. So far we've seen negative examples, right? To love, to, to, to live the way we're supposed to live means not murdering. It means not being angry and it means not being contemptuous. But mere negatives aren't enough. If I want to go to New York City, it's not enough for me to just not go to Atlanta. Okay, that doesn't get you to New York City. If I want to go to New York, it's not enough to not go to Detroit. I need to actually go to New York. And so when Jesus says, you know, don't do these things, don't murder, don't be angry, don't be contemptuous, that's helpful. But it's not a full picture of love. We need something positive, and that's what he gives in the rest of the passage. Where he says, love is forgiveness and reconciliation. Verse 23 so if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. The first image that he gives here is of you going to worship. So he's still referring to the Old Testament sacrificial system and the idea is uh, you're, you're going to worship, you're taking a sacrifice, you get right up there to the altar, you're in the process of offering your sacrifice and you remember somebody has something against me. I've done something wrong to another person. They are angry with me. We're not reconciled. He says, here's what you do. You leave your gift at the altar. You go and you get reconciled first. Then you can come back and finish offering your gift. This is crazy. To help us understand this, just picture like it's your wedding day. You're walking down the aisle 
Everybody stands up. Here comes the bride. About halfway down the aisle, you remember, I yelled at my hairdresser this morning because she didn't get my hair the way I wanted it. And you stop. You say, hold on, everybody. I'll be right back. You leave. Your dad's standing there. Everybody's watching. You go. Get in your car. Drive off. Find your hairdresser. Reconcile with her. Come back. Okay, now we can go on. And you finish with the wedding ceremony. Okay, that's crazy. That's nuts. But, but that's what it's like. You don't interrupt a sacrifice in the middle of offering it. When you're taking your sacrifice and you, you're, you made it to the temple and you're in, at the altar, you don't leave it there and say, hold on, I'll be right back. You finish what you're doing. But Jesus says, no, this is so important. Real love means that you prioritize forgiveness. You prioritize reconciliation. You let whatever else you, you're doing drop until you get this sorted out. We're getting in a whole new stratosphere here. So we're not just talking about the negatives. Don't murder. Don't be angry. We're talking about, this is not even your anger. It says if you're offering a gift, and you remember, your brother has something against you, so you've done something wrong, and they're angry with you. Love means you go seek them out. You find them. You admit your sin. You ask for forgiveness and seek to be reconciled. That's what love really is. That's how you get to New York. The other illustration in the next few verses makes the same point. Here he's talking about someone on the road going to court, so probably owing some debt. And you're walking with the person you owe the debt to. And he's saying, when you get to court, what's going to happen is pretty predictable. You owe the debt, so you're going to get there. They're going to find you guilty. They're going to throw you in debtor's prison, and you're not going to get out until you pay off the debt. So the wise thing to do would be while you're still walking, before you get very far at all, you turn to your accuser and you say, I have something uh, that I owe you. Would you please forgive me? Can we be reconciled now before I get thrown in a slammer? The wise thing to do is to make restitution, to make reconciliation as soon as possible. That's what love looks like. So I want to urge you today to do this. Take it to heart. This is what love really is. When a relationship is damaged, don't wait. Seek forgiveness and reconciliation as soon as possible. If you get angry at your child in the morning, don't wait until you're tucking them into bed at night to ask for forgiveness. Run after them. Grab them at the bus stop and say, will you please forgive me? If you are angry with your spouse, or you hurt them in some way, don't wait all day to let that build and fester and simmer. Call them as soon as possible. Text them. Say, I'm sorry, you forgive me. Let's talk more about this tonight. But take care of it as soon as you can. If you've got a problem with an extended family member or a coworker or a friend, or, don't say, you're right, I need to seek forgiveness. Next time I see them, I will be sure to ask them to forgive me. No, don't wait. You have my permission to leave church right now. Or take out your phone right now, discreetly maybe, and just text them and say, we need to talk. Okay, don't let it wait. It's too important. Real love doesn't wait. Real love doesn't let anger fester. It prioritizes forgiveness and reconciliation. I'm just giving you time to take your phones out right now. It's fine. Okay. Um, of course, this can be hard. 
It can be hard. That's why we don't do it. Uh, it's hard to ask for forgiveness. It's easier and more fun in the short term to never admit you're wrong. So where do we learn how to do it? Well, we get it from the gospel. Look, look in verses 25 and 26 again. You, you can read these verses quite easily as an explanation of the gospel. It says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. It's very easy and quite common throughout church history to interpret this passage as an allegory of, of our relationship with God. Every person is walking along the way. We're all heading towards court. We're all going to end up standing before God. And as we walk along the way, we all have a debt. We all, we all know the outcome of that court appointment. When we get to court and stand before God, if we haven't dealt with our sin, we will be condemned and thrown into hell. And so the wise thing to do is while you're on the way, as soon as possible, get right with God. Seek reconciliation. Accept forgiveness through Jesus so that that court appointment gets turned into a wonderful reunion with your Father. That's the wise thing to do. Now, if we do that, it actually helps us to learn to love other people. When we're reconciled to God, we can then be reconciled to others. So, So think, if you haven't been reconciled to God, it's really hard to get reconciled with others. If you've never asked forgiveness from God, it's hard for you to ask forgiveness of other people because you're still operating out of a works mentality. You're still trying to justify yourself. Any mistake that you make, whether you just remembered a fact wrong or you actually did something to disappoint another person, you can't admit that you were wrong because that would mean that, not just that you're wrong, but that you're a failed person. Your whole identity is tied up in climbing this ladder of proving that you're good enough. Any admission of failure makes you slide down a few rungs. So it's very hard for those who have not been forgiven to seek forgiveness. But on the other hand, if you've already made your peace with God along the way, if you've already asked for forgiveness from Him, the ice is broken. You've already humbled yourself cosmically. You've stood before God and you've said, I am so bad that unless the Son of God dies in my place, I have no hope of salvation. You've humbled yourself to that degree. And if you can stand before God and humble yourself like that, it's really not that hard to humble yourself before your kids or your spouse or your friend or your coworker, or the person at the store who's annoying you. Once we humble ourselves before God, we're able to humble ourselves before others. And the more we practice that repentance and forgiveness, the easier it gets. Believing the gospel. Every day, going to God for forgiveness enables us to love others by seeking forgiveness from them. So what has Jesus taught us in this passage today? Well, I think he's calling us to real love. And he's telling us, of course, loving means not murdering. It also means not being angry, and it means not holding others in contempt. But more than that, it means taking the initiative to seek reconciliation and forgiveness. That's what it means to love. That's what God did for us. And he's calling us to go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you have worked in our hearts to repent and to put our faith in you. And my prayer for anyone who's here that has not made that um, commitment, not asked for forgiveness from you, 
that today would be the day of salvation. Not wait any longer, walking along the way. The, the court date is coming. I pray that they would reconcile with you right now and receive forgiveness from you. Lord, as we receive that forgiveness, I pray that we would be forgiving people who seek forgiveness. May grace permeate everything that we do in our relationships with our families, with our coworkers, with our neighbors, with strangers. Help us to forgive. Lord, please kill the anger that resides in our hearts. Make us lovers. In Jesus' name, amen.